2006 is a significant year. The 100th anniversary of something that's not worth celebrating. A division that never should have happened in our movement. And I'm thankful to Tulsa and other institutions and organizations across this country for the courage they're showing and saying, let's come together and have a family reunion. I'm very honored to be here. And I welcome especially those of you from Christian churches who are visiting. Uh, what I'm finding as I travel across the country is there's so much cross-pollination. So many people have uh, roots in Christian churches that are now in acapella churches or in uh, so many people in Christian churches with roots in acapella churches. In fact, you might not exactly be sure who you are today or where your roots are. And so with apologies to Jeff Foxworthy, I thought it would be helpful if I began with a thing called you could very well be a member of the Church of Christ if. Okay? If you were 18 years old before you knew God, God and direct us was not one word, you're probably a member of the Church of Christ. If you plan to be back at the building at the next appointed time. If you've ever wondered what would happen if the preacher did not have a ready recollection of the things he had prepared. Or... When some good brother says, now separate and apart from the Lord's Supper, and you start to reach for your wallet, you're probably a member of the Church of Christ. If just hearing the phrase 728B makes you shout amen, you're from the Church of Christ. If you've never heard of John Wesley, but you have heard of Joel Miller, it's probably a good sign. In fact, if you recognize any of these first names, Landon, Prentice, Rubel, Norval, Flavel, Furman, or Batzel, there's a good chance you're a member of the Church of Christ. Uh, if you don't believe in tithing, but you think every Christian should give at least 10%, you're probably a member <laughs> of the Church of Christ. If you check Acts 2.38 before you ever buy a new Bible, I know you're a member of the Church of Christ. And the final clue is that if you think Jesus turned water into grape juice, then you're probably... <laughs> A member of the Church of Christ. Well, I am, and I'm proud that I am. It's a great heritage, heritage of unity that we need to reclaim. I want to read to you now from Ephesians chapter 3. For this reason, I kneel before the Father, from whom the whole family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of His glorious riches... He may strengthen you with power through His Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the saints to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to Him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to His power that is at work within us, to Him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. That's a big prayer. A prayer that is prayed to a man who believes in a big God. And who believes that the church can do big things to bring glory to an awesome God. Are we praying big prayers? 
Maybe you've heard the story of the young man that went to a candy shop and told the, told the man behind the counter, I need three boxes of candy. $5 box, $10 box, $20 box of candy. The man said, why do you need three boxes of candy? And he said, oh, I've got a first date tonight with a girl that's really special. When I bring her home, if she shakes my hand, I'm going to give her the $5 box. If she gives me a hug, I'm going to give her the $10 box. But if she grabs me and gives me a big goodnight kiss, I'm going to give her the $20 box of candy. So he bought all three. That night he went to pick the young girl up, and the family invited him in to have supper first. And the father said, young man, we say grace at our home before meals. Would you please offer the prayer? That boy bowed his head. He prayed the longest, the most passionate, the most eloquent prayer you've ever heard. When he was finally finished, his young date leaned over and whispered to him, I had no idea you were so spiritual. And he whispered back, and I had no idea your daddy owned a candy shop. And the moral is, if you've got big plans, you better pray some big prayers. Paul says, God can do more than we ask or imagine for His glory because there's a power at work in us in the church. Do we really believe the church can do awesome things for an awesome God? Look over with me quickly in Matthew 16. You know this story. Jesus is asking the disciples, what's the word about me on the street? The disciples say, well, some good, some not so good. Jesus says, what do you say? Peter says, well, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus says, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you're Peter, and on this rock I'll build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. And I'll give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Now, when I was a baby preacher, you know what I thought that verse meant? I thought it meant no matter how beat up the church gets, it's going to survive. The world is going to attack us and bruise us and batter us, but somehow we're going to hang on and someday Jesus is going to come back and he's going to reclaim his poor battered little church and take it to glory. That's not what he said. And one word changed my understanding of that verse. And it was the word gates. Are gates an offensive or a defensive weapon? Defensive. In other words, Jesus didn't say, I'm going to build a church that's going to hide behind their walls and try to hold on. I'm going to build a church that is going to go out and take on the walls of hell. I'm going to build an aggressive church, a militant church, a, a church that advances the kingdom, a church that takes back what the kingdom of darkness has illegitimately claimed. The kingdom of darkness is going to set up gates to try to stop the advance of the church I'm building, but the hell can't put up walls strong enough to stop my church. I am going to build a church that conquers, not a church that cowers. Is that the church you know? Are our churches hiding behind our walls or tearing down walls? Turn over to Matthew 18. How do we take on the gates of hell? Matthew 18. Look at verse 18. 
I tell you the truth, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Does that sound familiar? He just got through saying that in chapter 16 when he said, I'm going to build a church that takes on the gates of hell. Now look at the first word of verse 19. Again. Now, down in Texas, when we say again, well, actually in Texas we say again, but when we say again, what we mean is I'm about to repeat myself. I'm about to tell you what I just said in different words. Now, I just said you're going to have authority to bind and loose. And by the way, that word loose is the same word in 1 John 3 where it says the reason the Son of Man came was to destroy the works of the devil. I'm going to give you that kind of authority. Again, here's what I mean. I tell you that if two of you on earth agree about anything you ask for, it will be done for you by my Father in heaven. For what two or three come together in my name, there I am with them. Is that permission for us to play a health and wealth theology? Is that permission for us to say, God, give us whatever we wish? No, it's permission for us to come together and agree on an agenda that is God-honoring and health-threatening and then ask for it and expect it to happen. It's the prayer of Jesus. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We need to pray prayers that plead for God to do what He wants. One reason heaven is so happy, there's just one will there. There's six billion wills down here all fussing and fighting. In heaven there's one will and the angels do it joyfully, immediately, excitedly, completely. We need to want the will of God like the angels do. You see, I learned something that has changed my ministry about ten years ago. And it's a simple principle. That sometimes God makes the sovereign choice to accomplish His will only when He's been asked to do it. You say, why should we pray for the kingdom of come and His will to be done? Isn't God going to do what He wants? Listen again. God often makes the sovereign choice to accomplish His will only after He's been asked to do it. I'll give you some examples in the Bible. Through the prophet Jeremiah, God gives comfort to Israel who's about to go into Babylonian captivity. And here's what He says. This is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I'll come to you and fulfill my gracious promise to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. And then you'll call upon me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. And you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I'll bring you back from captivity. God says, I have got plans for you. My will is that this captivity will last 70 years. And if you come and seek me with all your heart, you'll find me and my will will be done. He said in Ezekiel, this also I will let the house of Israel ask me to do for them. So let's fast forward a few decades to the book of Daniel chapter 9. In the first year of Darius, son of Xerxes, I, Daniel, understood from the scriptures according to the word of the Lord given to Jeremiah the prophet that the desolation of Jerusalem would last 70 years. So, I turned to the Lord God and pleaded with Him in prayer and petition, in fasting and in sackcloth and ashes. In other words, Daniel said, once I understood what God wanted to happen through Jeremiah's writings in the Scriptures, I began to beg for it. I asked for God to do what He had declared He wanted to do. And the children came home. 
You see, when you find a promise in the Bible, that shouldn't restrain prayer. It should incite prayer. Elijah appears before Ahab and says, it ain't going to rain. And it didn't. It didn't rain for three and a half years. But then God said to Elijah, go tell Ahab, it is going to rain. I'm sending rain. And so, you know, they had the whole Mount Carmel thing and the prophets of Baal were destroyed. But what happened next? Elijah gets down on his knees seven times and prays for rain. Why does he need to pray if God has already said he wants to send it? Because he understands. A sovereign God often makes the sovereign choice to accomplish his will only after he's been asked to do it. The aim of prayer is not to get past the reluctance of God. God is able to bless us. He's willing to bless us. God has so much more imagined for our churches than we're even attempting. But He sovereignly chooses to wait until we ask for more. And so kingdom prayer, please God, do what you long to do. I call it praying for rain. R-E-I-G-N. Asking for God's rule to come where Satan has illegitimately set up walls. I'm going to suggest to you today three things our prayer life needs in our churches. Here's number one. I believe kingdom prayer needs a holy burden about the way things are. If you're comfortable with the borders of the dominion of darkness where they are, you don't pray for rain. Kingdom prayers are only prayed by people who are discontent with the status quo. One of the problems I have is that whenever I see something that I know is a victory for the kingdom of darkness and I begin to feel a burden, I've learned how to switch channels. We all have a remote. We go for a walk. We play golf. We turn on the TV. We surf the internet. We have learned how to switch channels whenever God tries to put a burden on us. Tony Campolo talks about eating one day in Haiti. And he has a plate of food at a table by a window. And a bunch of street kids get on the other side of the window and stare at him. They're seeing more food on his plate than they'll probably have in a week. And their plight's making him uncomfortable. And the owner of the restaurant saw the situation and knew what to do. Walked over cursed the kids, pulled down the blinds, and said, now you can eat. And that's what we do. We pull down the blinds and try to ignore the burden. And so maybe the first thing we should do is ask God to give us an increasing capacity to break over the things that break his heart. When Nehemiah heard that the walls of the city of God were down, the first thing it says he did was weep. You see, kingdom prayer is an act of rebellion about the way things are. It's it's a response to the gracious work of the Holy Spirit putting pressure on your heart so that you become discontent with where the borders of the kingdom of darkness are currently setting up their walls. Has that ever happened to you? You hear one more story in your church of some dad who's going to walk away from his wife and three kids to go after his secretary. 
Do you ever get to the point where that just wants to make you vomit? You're driving down the street and you see another gentleman's club going up in your city. Do you ever just stop your car and pray against it? And have you ever thought if all the churches in all our cities would pray against them, maybe they would go away? You ever been in a mall or at a ball game and thousands of people are standing rooting for the team? And does it ever just hit you? Oh, but God, how many of these people are lost? When's the last time you gave God permission just to put a burden on your heart that you didn't switch channels on? Let me tell you something. Revival never comes before remorse. You will not find a single revival in the Bible that came without first the people weeping about the way things I don't believe our marriages have to stay in separation. I don't believe our kids have to stay in rebellion. I don't believe our people in our pews have to stay in addiction. I don't believe our churches have to stay in stagnation. But they will until the kingdom of God becomes full of a holy discontent about how things are. Kingdom prayer needs a holy burden. And then second, it needs what I call a real balance between our hands and our knees. You see, when you get that burden, our first urge is let's form a committee and do something. What did Nehemiah do? When he heard the walls of the city of God were down, it says first thing he did was he wept. Second thing, he mourned and he fasted and he prayed before the God of heaven. For 40 days... He didn't start a seminar, read a book, form a task force. He just fell before God and fasted and prayed about the burden. Prayer is our first priority, not our last resort. Now, should we be willing for God to use us to answer those prayers? Of course. Don't get on your knees if you're not willing to use your hands. But first, get on your knees. I agree with Haddon Robinson who said the work is prayer and the ministry is the reward for the work. You see, kingdom prayer is hard work. That's why we do so little of it. Paul says in Romans 15.30, join me in my struggle by praying to God for me. He says of Epaphras in Colossians 4.12, he is always wrestling in prayer for you. That word struggle, that word wrestle, in the Greek it's the word soon agonizomai. It's where we get our word agonize. Do you know why we don't pray so much in our church? Because it's hard. It is easier to organize than agonize. It's easier to call a task force together, send out a petition, read a book, send everybody to a seminar, than it is to get a bunch of people on our knees 30 minutes a day and just ask for the reign of God to come. Is there a church among us that if we announced that some NFL superstar was going to be there Wednesday night to give a testimony, would not have to bang in chairs for the packed house? And is there a church among us that can get half our people back if we say this Wednesday night we're going to get on our knees and pray to God about what needs to happen in our city?
See, here's the thing. I think a kingdom-focused disciple knows the chief hindrance to the reign of God is not methodological, it's spiritual. As Paul says so clearly in Ephesians, we are up against spiritual forces of darkness. There's a cosmic war going on. We have a real enemy that is against our churches. And we're not going to overcome the strategy of the enemy by just reading another good book. We are going to have to ask for spiritual power. And then finally, I want to suggest to you that kingdom prayers require a firm belief that the king will show up. Churches of Christ and Christian churches share this in common. We have no trouble believing God was really, really, really active in the past. And regardless of your millennial interpretation, we don't have any problem believing God's going to do some really big stuff in the future. What we're just not very sure about is, does God do anything big right now? Or is God retired? Some years ago, I was driving down a little state highway in Texas to a spot in East Texas to preach I'd never been to before. And there's this little spot in East Texas called Little Hope. And I got tickled because I saw a sign that pointed with a red arrow down a gravel road. And it said, this way to Little Hope Baptist Church. Now, they might be really sweet people, but they ought to think about changing that name. Because who wants to go every Sunday to the church of little hope? But a lot of people do. You know, one thing about our fellowship in the restoration movement, no matter what stream you're in, you believe that God created the world in six days and you believe that he parted the Red Sea and you believe he called down fire from heaven and you believe Jesus walked on water and you believe the tomb is empty and we teach those stories to our kids maybe we need to put them back in our pulpits and I'll tell you why the stories in the Bible about the amazing things God did are not to teach us about how powerful God was they're to teach us about how powerful God is They're not there to tell us how God could do, but what God can do. I want to tell you a true story. And I always think it's funny when a preacher says, now this is a true story. (laughs) But it must be true because I heard it on Paul Harvey. Back about ten years now. A young mother with a three-year-old boy pulls into a parking lot of a grocery store in Mobile, Alabama. And she gives him a little lecture before they get out of the car. Now, don't you start with Mama about chocolate chip cookies. Mama's got to go in and get a few things for supper for Daddy. And we're in a hurry. So she gets him out of the car, takes him inside. They get the cart. She puts him in the little seat. And she starts to go up and down the aisle getting the things that she needs for supper. Well, before long, they come down the aisle where he sees his heart's delight. Mama, could we get a box of chocolate chip cookies? Don't you start with Mama. I've already told you that's not what we're doing right now. They go around the corner. Mama, could we go back and get a box of chocolate chip cookies? Don't make Mama have to spank you right here in this store. I've already told you we're not getting cookies tonight. They get in line to check out. Evidently, the little fellow thought, this is my last chance. According to Harvey, he stood up in the cart and as loud as he could said, In the name of Jesus, could we get some chocolate chip cookies? 
And evidently the people that heard the little fella were either amused or convicted because Harvey says that young mom went back to her car with 23 boxes of chocolate chip cookies. <laughs> if we believe the tomb is empty, we must believe the king can still show up. You know what I think has happened in our churches and our movement? We have got become so accustomed to abnormal that it feels normal. And if normal ever showed up, it would feel abnormal and scare us to death. When I read the book of Acts, I have to ask, is that the past or is that the norm? And I'm saying that more and more I'm believing that extraordinary ought to be ordinary in the church of Jesus Christ. There's nothing more exciting than when a church starts to beg God to show up and do whatever it is He wants to do. And to live in the coming of the reign of God. And so I ask you to do that. Let's go home to our churches. And let's start praying for prayers and for things that are so awesome only God will get the glory. I charge us with the crime of praying to puny. Let's start praying prayers that are so big only God could do it. I, I play golf and so I collect golf stories. And one of my favorites happened in the early 1960s. Arnold Palmer, who at that time was the Tiger Woods of his generation, was asked by the king of Saudi Arabia to come and give an exhibition. And the king was so impressed with Palmer's skill that he made it known that he wished to give Palmer a gift. Now, like a typical Westerner, Palmer shrugged his shoulders and said, Tell the king he doesn't need to give me a gift. His hospitality has been a gift. But someone took Palmer aside and said, you don't understand in our culture, it is an insult to refuse the king when he wants to give you a gift. You need to ask for something. So Palmer shrugged and said, uh, all right, tell the king he can give me a golf club. According to the story, the next day a servant came to Palmer's hotel room and knocked on the door. Palmer opened the door and the servant gave Palmer the deed to a 300-acre golf club. And if you're going to ask the king, why would you think small? I've got people in my church praying that there will never be any more divorces in my church. That's a kingdom prayer. I started praying a few years ago that my church would see a thousand baptisms in one year. And we haven't. But we've certainly seen a whole lot more than we used to see since I started praying. Do you think it's God's will that we could baptize a thousand people a year in our churches? I think it is. Do you think it'll happen if we never ask for it? And several years ago, God really put it on my heart to begin to feel a burden 
for unity in his people. I wanted to switch the channel because I knew, Lord, if I stand up and start to speak out for unity, especially with my brothers and sisters in the Christian church, I will catch a lot of flack. But God wouldn't let me switch the channel. That was three years ago. Within 12 months, I was speaking at the North American Christian Convention. And look what's happening this year. There's no way what we're experiencing right now could have been orchestrated unless God was behind it. Here's the thing. Look at this group that's here this morning. Look at all the different places we're from. As I was walking over here, I just looked at the license plates. Texas, Wisconsin, Missouri, North Carolina, Kansas, Iowa. I even saw one that said Saskatchewan. I know who they are. They're walking around in short sleeves saying, man, it's hot. We're from all different We're from all these different places. We're from all different races. Different socioeconomic backgrounds. Different kinds and sizes of churches. And let's be honest, a lot of different interpretations in this room on almost every question we could talk about in the Bible. But here we are in the same room together. Why? Because we believe the same story. It's an amazing story. Think about it. We believe in a God that we've never seen. We believe this God in six days made everything you could ever see. And it gets better. We believe this God took a 100-year-old man and a 90-year-old woman and got them pregnant to raise up a, a family through whom he was going to bless the world. And he rescued that family out of Egypt with plagues and parting the sea. And he took them into the promised land by making walls come down when you blew a trumpet. And it gets better. We believe that he stopped the sun and, and that he called down fire out of heaven. But then get this. We believe that one day in Nazareth, this young teenage Jewish virgin found out she was pregnant. And the embryo in her womb was deity. And God passed through the birth canal of a Jewish girl and the son was laid in a manger. And it gets better. We believe the son grew up to be the son of man and son of God. He never sinned. Never even had a sinful thought. But he did heal the sick and the blind and the lame. And he raised the dead and he walked on the water and he fed thousands with a sack lunch. But it gets better.
They murdered him, you know. And God took the sin of all of us and put it on him. And then he took all of his righteousness and put it on us. And they took the body off and they threw it in a tomb and they put a big rock in front and they sealed it and they put a bunch of soldiers there. But after three days, God said, I've had enough and busted him out. And he arose visibly and bodily right into heaven. And he's going to come back the same way for his victorious, conquering church. That's what brought us together. That's our story. That's what we say we believe. And loved ones, if we can believe a story like that, then we can pray a lot bigger than we've been praying. I believe God moves mountains. And I believe prayer moves God. And so, he says, Now to him who is able to do more than we ask or imagine, in Jesus and in the church, to him be glory forever and ever. Amen. God bless.